Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Every day since October 7th, my heart has been breaking. The unconscionable terrorist attack on Israel killed so many innocents. And yet, in the Israeli response, many times more innocents in Gaza have been killed. Across the region, children and civilians are suffering and dying unnecessarily. To help us understand, really, really understand, the situation on the ground in Gaza and Israel, and the role of aid organizations, I've invited Abby Maxman on the show. Abby is the president and CEO of Oxfam America. Israelis woke up today to find their worst nightmares had come true in the form of a massive surprise attack by Palestinian militants in Gaza into the south of this country. It has been one month since more than 1,400 people were massacred here in southern Israel, hundreds more taken hostage by Hamas. Uh, This as a grim milestone is marked in Gaza. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry saying that more than 10,000 people have been killed since this conflict began. Once again tonight, the United Nations is sounding the alarm, warning of the rising number of civilian deaths as Israeli missiles hitting a second refugee camp on Thursday. The UN quote saying their experts are on the ground running out of time, adding that the Palestinian people are at grave risk of genocide. We're returning to the situation on the ground in Gaza and the international charity Oxfam is warning that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war. It says just 2% of the regular food supply has been delivered to Gaza since Israel's siege on the territory. I'm Abby Maxman, and I am fighting to protect civilians in Gaza and Israel. Sorry, not sorry. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today on Sorry, Not Sorry. Can you just tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Thanks so much, Alyssa. My name's Abby Maxman. I'm the president and CEO of Oxfam America. Oxfam is a global organization that fights inequality to end poverty and injustice. And I'm here today talking about our work in Israel and Palestine. You know, I was taken by your sorry, not sorry statement, because it doesn't feel like protecting civilians. It doesn't feel like anyone should ever have to apologize for that. That should just be the norm, right? It's such a fraught subject. And I just, I want to start with a question that might seem obvious, but I want to lay it out there because we know that people have and will continue to make accusations about this. Does Oxfam hold a position that is either anti-Israel or anti-Palestine? The short answer is no. Oxfam has long worked with Palestinian and Israeli partner organizations in the region to fight inequality and injustice. And Oxfam has consistently condemned Hamas's brutal attacks and taking of hostages on October 7th, as well as Israel's complete siege of the Gaza Strip announced the following day. And we are unwavering in our calls for a ceasefire, access to humanitarian aid, the release of all hostages, and an end to this cruel and illegal siege in Gaza. And really, above all, the violence and cycles of violence must end in order to protect civilians. I just want to back up for a second, because obviously Oxfam was in this area before October 7th. So 
I just want to talk about the work that Oxfam did in Israel and Gaza before, prior to October 7th and the terrorist attack. Oxfam has worked for decades in the region and with both Palestinian and Israeli partner organizations. And we've been focusing on promoting economic opportunities and protecting women from gender-based violence. We've been unequivocal in advocating for an end to the occupation and a just and durable solution to the conflict. And the notion that peace must always be rooted in the recognition of human rights and dignity of all Israelis and Palestinians. Our work really spans the ongoing work, such as working with local organizations to repair and rebuild water and sanitation infrastructure. We repair wells and solar energy systems to help farming families. And we distribute cash and food and bedding and hygiene items when it's needed. We've long supported small businesses and farmers to find the resources they need to succeed and also having a voice in the decisions that affect their lives and livelihoods. And we've really been particularly focused on helping women to take up non-traditional roles in their farms and their families and businesses and community leadership. So it's been a range of work, Alyssa. And now, currently, we've been working with two partner organizations inside Gaza who have been able to, despite the bombs and everything that's going on around them, to provide some support, not at the levels needed, to local communities. And I'd love to talk more about them if there's interest too. Absolutely. I want to just get an idea of what happens inside these incredible organizations when something is unfolding, like October 7th. They're obviously horrific terrorist attack aimed primarily at civilians on October 7th that killed 1,400 people in Israel and resulted in taking 240 hostages. Tell me about the partner organizations that Oxfam works with in this region. Well, we work historically with quite a number of Israeli and Palestinian partners, but right now in Gaza, we have two partner organizations who we have a long relationship with who've been able to start to maintain some ability to help local communities in need. And it's really remarkable that our staff and our partners are able to do that under the current conditions. Two of those organizations are the Palestine Medical Relief Society and the Culture and Free Thought Association. These are two of the largest health and human rights organizations in Gaza. And they have been delivering family hygiene kits and cash for food, although there's very little available, but people have nothing. And so we've been trying to scale up just whatever we can with these organizations. And they have a long, incredible experience in Gaza. And just, I know it's a question that we get a lot about to your issue of trust. You know, how do we know our organizations that our work is delivering to the people in need? And these are established, independent, well-vetted, non-governmental organizations in Gaza. They have supplies and networks prior to this. We've worked with them to do as much as possible in these very difficult circumstances. We're talking about human beings, and they are there to help each other, first responders helping each other in the time of need. They are no different than any of us in that regard. And they are going to make sure they're getting the supplies that we're able to get there to the people in most need. As that day was unfolding, what is happening inside the walls of an aid organization like Oxfam? Like, what are you feeling? What does it mean to watch a day like that unfold? October 7th really was a horrific day at Oxfam. We, like the rest of the world, watched the news in disbelief and horror as we learned of the 1,400 Israelis killed and the more than 200 hostages and we start from day one calling for their immediate and unconditional release. At the same time, Alyssa, we have 33 staff members in Gaza, full-time. They're Palestinian, live there, work there, work tirelessly, incredible professionals doing the hard work for rights and dignity and justice every day. I've had the privilege of 
spending time with them some years ago, and we continue in our partnership to make sure we're helping stand up and support the work there every day. And so that feeling of horror as war was breaking out at levels that, as we're seeing, but you could feel that unprecedented nature of what was happening the moment it happened. And really, immediately as an aid organization, our immediate priority is the safety and security of our staff and just trying to locate them and make sure we can make contact with them and see if they're okay and get the real-time information from them of what's happening on the ground. And we know they have family and friends and loved ones. This is their lives. Uh, hi, uh, today is a Friday and traditionally Fridays have been a time for our family to come together, to savor a meal together and relish in a moment of tranquility. However, since the evacuation order was issued, I, I really felt uh, a distinct sense of disconnection. Uh, my family members have been scattered across different households. I feel our unity have been fragmented. Um, in rare moments nowadays, when we have access to the internet, like our primary concern has been to check on one another, well-being, ensuring that we are all still alive and accounted for. Uh, I really look forward for the moment when we, when we can convene um, together as family. That notion of imagining what they're going through. I'm a mother of three and imagining the grief, the fear of protecting one's own family and children while you're also trying to be there to support uh, your communities and your friends and colleagues. And then as we know, days later, the calls to move and when the siege was imposed created a whole new set of terrifying dynamics for everybody. And it was almost immediate, right? Almost immediately, Israel responded in those airstrikes that began destroying basic infrastructure in Gaza. And that's an infrastructure that was already fragile. It was an infrastructure that was already something that Oxfam had to support and lift up through partnership organizations. It also cut off food, fuel, medicine, electricity, water. What am I missing? Basically, all the necessities for life. What impact does that have on Gaza that already had such a fragile infrastructure? It's devastating. I've almost run out of adjectives to describe. It's a humanitarian catastrophe unfolding at unprecedented, enormous proportions. I've spent my career in the field of international humanitarian relief and development, and I've worked in conflict and post-conflict settings, including in Gaza and the West Bank and OPTI, as we call it, Occupied Palestinian Territory in Israel. And it is just staggering what's going on. You've named everything. You know, imagine overnight that cutoff of food, fuel, medicine, electricity, access to health care, if you're on insulin, that goes away. Your ability to get anything that you need to survive for the basic necessities are just gone. And we know the numbers. I'll talk about them. We know that a million people, at least a million people, were forced to flee their homes. Two million people, of whom a million are children in the Gaza Strip, just terrified every day. The trauma of living through war is terrifying. And then figuring out how do you go get food and water? How do you put your head down at night to sleep safely? When fuel is cut up, it's exceptionally cruel and to imagine because wastewater treatment stops. Clean water stops. People are living in, you know, one of my staff, they've talked about being grateful for only living in a small place with 60 people, 60 other people. I am imagining how do you put your head down at night? The fear, the emotional trauma, but also how do I wash? How do I drink? How do I eat? It's really tragic. Those are the things that we can understand from, or not maybe understand, but really able to tangibly identify. But I keep thinking about, you know, I'm a UNICEF ambassador and 
I don't know, 20 years ago. I went to Angola two years after the peace treaty was signed. Obviously, the longest civil war in history. And the thing that I was so struck by were the things that you couldn't imagine or that weren't covered as far as war goes. Things like smell, things like the amount of flies, things like the dust from the rubble, the air pollution from the rubble, things like the sound pollution of that overwhelming vibrational sound of war, hidden weapons, being afraid to do anything, the illness, the disease that sprouts up from the lack of sanitation. These are the things that people aren't even talking about that will outlast this conflict, that will continue to shape what Gaza looks like, not only looks but functions as, and also as the children grow up to be adults who had to realize this trauma as being their reality. And that's the part that I keep thinking about. The senses that we don't cover on the news, the things that we can't see on social media, like smell and disease and dust and smoke, all of those things that we just don't think about and we don't talk about. Can you speak to that? The 33 full-time workers in Gaza, have they spoken at all about that? Oh, Alyssa, it's so true. It's so real. It's constant, too. And the trauma. So yes, our staff have talked about feeling like they're rats in cages, not being able to escape. It can bring us to our knees, I think, just pausing to convey even some of the small stories, which are just representative of a larger constant daily pool of them. One of our staff had a 12-year-old daughter who was really looking forward to October for her birthday. And we all know how exciting birthdays can be for a 12-year-old girl. And in the lead up and on her actual birthday, she said, this is how her life has changed. I really, I hope that this doesn't become my death day. Today is um, my daughter's 12th birthday. And to be honest, I was yani, glad that she felt excited. She had been counting down to it since the beginning of this month. But last night, she was like, you know what I wish for my birthday? I just wish it won't be my death day. I wish I won't be targeted by a rocket and uh, that the people wouldn't have to say, wow, she was killed in the same day that she was born. So, yeah, this is just a glimpse of our everyday life in Gaza. A child thinking about those things. We've had staff member talk about the fear because they had to flee their homes with nothing when they evacuated to the south. No clothes, no clean clothes. And so talking about the census, that they had to go look for clothes, but in the midst of bombing and shelling. So basics such as water and food are vital, but also hygiene kits. What do you need? Just the most basic of hygiene. And when you don't even have enough water to wash and clothes to clean, and this is day in and day out, we are nearly at the one month mark of people living with exactly what you described, the constant fear and shelling and that trauma that evokes. The smells that you talked about, they've described flies and open air sewage areas, and it's just awful. And imagine a whole day and then another and not knowing when it's going to end. I sit with my kids at night and talk over dinner about what that must feel like, not knowing not just where your next meal is going to come from, but how are you going to get through hour by hour and day by day? And I do feel like this is the point where we do need to recognize again that what Hamas did to civilians of Israel was horrific. And I think it's fair to say that Hamas and Israel have knowingly taken actions that have targeted civilians in this conflict, because it seems like you cannot talk about 
about the victimization of one without the victimization of the other, because we are in a time where people seem to feel that if you speak of one side more than the other, you don't care about the other side. And I feel like 20 minutes in, this is your reminder that we care about all of humanity. We care to save civilians. Neither Oxfam or UNICEF or Doctors Without Borders or any of these organizations on the ground doing incredible work have any intention other than saving the lives of children and civilians and easing the pain and suffering. And I just want to note that we are speaking on November 6th. This is probably going to broadcast a week from today. So numbers will have changed probably in the week between now and then. So also excuse that to anyone who's listening who thinks that we are spreading misinformation. There are many people, including elected officials and political broadcasters, who say the casualty numbers coming out of Gaza are lies being told by Hamas, who controls the Palestinian health services in Gaza. Tell us how you come by the casualty numbers and why you feel that they are trustworthy. As you say, as of today, and we know that those are changing every day, we rely on the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, known as OCHA, to get that third-party independent data verified. And as of now, time of recording, there have been more than 9,700 people killed in Gaza, according to their data, in addition to the confirmed 1,400 Israelis killed. We know that we're hearing both sides actually talking about higher numbers, but we rely on the UN Office of the Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs. And I think we can't talk about this conflict as it stands in 2023 without acknowledging what role propaganda is playing in this. Both Hamas and Israel have engaged in propaganda, which has obscured the truth around events to the point where it's hard to even decipher what's happening. How does this affect your ability to work in the region and spread necessary information around the world? And tell me about those partner organizations that you rely on to help you sort through the information. Misinformation and disinformation are huge problems. And the polarization we are seeing amplified in social media is really making it harder to acknowledge what I see. And I think we all can see is the truth here is that we can hold space and prioritize civilians on both sides of a conflict. Our unequivocal condemnation of intentional deprivation of freedom and violence towards civilians doesn't lessen the urgency for our long-term demand for justice on all sides. These are both truths we must hold that, above all, that this is about our common humanity. There are civilians bearing the brunt of this crisis, untold levels of suffering. And so it is really so vital to listen to the voices of people who are living through this crisis. And we do focus our work on sharing the stories in our social media channels and with reporters of the voices of our staff when they're able to connect and to do so where they feel safe to do so. And we've almost daily had voice notes from them sharing about their lives. These are the reliable sources that we believe can really cut through the noise. And it's just been uh, harrowing to hear. And the outrage to choose a side, to somehow diminish Anybody is not going to help us get where we need to. What got us to this moment is not going to get us where we need to go. You mentioned your workers leaving you voice messages when they can, and the Israeli government has repeatedly cut off communications from Gaza. I'm currently on my 23rd day at the Egyptian border. I arrived in the second day of the war, but when we approached the border, it was heavily bombed by the Israeli side forcing us to return back. We made another attempt the following day, but the same situation unfolded. We were placed near to the border in Sheikh Zwaid area where we are stuck now and unable to move because we didn't have our passports with us. These 23 days have felt like 23 years where time seems to stand still and we are in a state of just waiting. Being separated from your family in these dire times is incredibly painful. 
this is the time where they need you and you need them. You need to hold your children in your arms, talk with them and try to calm them down. It's really a distressing reality. All we can do here is to follow the news and await for any updates about the border. The daily struggle we are facing in checking on our people and families in Gaza is really compounded by the weak and bad communication on both sides, which leaves us with endless worries all the time. There were two days we lost the connection with our families during the telecommunication blackout in Gaza Strip, where we couldn't receive any information about our families. Each time we lost the connection, the hours passed as of days and years. There is no kinds of thoughts or ideas left that did not enter my mind amid the absence of the connection. In this border area, the mind is still and remains active all the time, leading to mental exhaustion. We are enduring heartbreaking experience that's difficult to fathom. Many of the stuck people here have lost either their children, wives, siblings, and loved ones because of the Israeli airstrikes on their homes. The amount of pain and oppression they are enduring is beyond our imagination. It's unimaginable not to be able to say goodbye or even lay eyes on them for the last time. It's become a daily distressing experience. From our end here, from my side, all our desire and hope here is to be reunited with our families, sharing the same fate in this horrible situation. What impact does that have on your work, on the work of other organizations, on workers who are on the ground, on these humanitarian endeavors? How can we even get the supplies in if we can't communicate where they're going to be? I have to say that weekend, last weekend, when we, the time we had a 36-hour stretch, we could not make contact during the full blackout, was terrifying, just awful. And I know for our staff, what they've expressed is they feel alone and forgotten. Does the world know what's going on? That sense of being isolated, and I mentioned one who said he felt like he was the rats in a cage, can't get out, but they can't be heard. And it's really a terrifying thing. We are in contact with them daily. When the communications allow, it is difficult and increasingly so to stay in touch on a consistent basis. But as they do struggle with the full blackout and the terror of experiencing airstrikes, no electricity, no landlines. We know that without fuel, vehicles can't move. So they're using car batteries to try to recharge their phones so that they can get access. They're being incredibly resourceful in the midst of this trauma. And so how do we get aid in? It is right now a drop in the ocean of need. The needs are staggering. The trucks that have started to go in, everybody's grateful that there is some opening. But before the crisis, the number of trucks providing relief into the Gaza Strip every day was well over a hundred. And so that was before a crisis of this proportion. And as you described, the senses of rubble and everything that's happening all around, it's just practically nothing against the backdrop of the need. So coordination, communication, and logistics are all incredibly complicated and constrained. And we're just preparing for the moment when it's safe enough. And I know our staff are saying that when it's safe enough for them to be able to scale up a response. But in the meantime, the suffering, the terror, the death, and the despair is staggering. I do want to try to just touch as delicately as possible that the Jewish people are in historical trauma, right? They're in a generational trauma response. And I see it and I understand it. Maybe not understand it, but I see it and I can wrap my head around it. 
I also think that there is a trauma response going on for the Palestinians. It's a potentially more recent trauma response, but I do feel like there is hurt on every side. That, to me, that hurt where people can't see the humanity in the people, and I'm not talking about the people who live in Israel or the people who live in Gaza or the West Bank. I'm talking about people here in the United States who are looking at this and can't get past their own generational trauma to be able to even want to save civilians. That, to me, plus the distrust that has somehow come to the surface that people have with humanitarian organizations, the distrust that the people have of the UN, the distrust that people have now with humanitarian organizations becoming businesses, I think that combination of the historical trauma and almost being justifying the killing of civilians, plus that people are looking at Doctors Without Borders or Oxfam as these money-making machines, I think is a really dangerous combination. How do we regain the trust in the global community of the UN, of organizations like UNICEF, Oxfam, Doctors Without Borders, all the people doing the absolute work of angels and heroes. How do we regain the trust of these institutions? And I guess that's the problem is that people look at them as institutions. But if humanitarian organizations aren't doing the work and we don't trust them to do the work and we can't get over our own pain and trauma, how do we work towards peace ever? Yeah, you're talking about so many big, big important issues and that intergenerational trauma on both sides, certainly Palestinians and Israelis and the Jewish people all carry that. We all carry it. We all have our shared experiences or lived experiences and identities from where we've come and the histories and stories that we know and tell. And that distrust of institutions makes me so sad. But you see it, right? I do, although, yes, and I also am so grateful. The people who support our work, they do it on the basis of trust. They understand that we have the commitment, experience, knowledge, systems, because people want accountability. There's a funny tension between wanting us to do good, but also wanting to assure the excellent stewardship of the resources we're entrusted with. And so you need some systems and processes to do that and to hold that trust. And I like to believe that those who do support us or those who are interested in learning more and who do care about human rights and dignity and security and our common humanity, they come with us in our work by taking action, by signing petitions, by donating their time and their money to making sure that we are enabled to do the work and to support the communities who are most affected at times like these and collaborate with our partners. But you're right, there's a, a cynicism out there, and the misinformation and disinformation is really problematic. And I think what winds up happening is because of that distrust, it's too easy to ignore or find ulterior motives for things like a call for a humanitarian ceasefire. Since when is that something that people go, ooh, I don't know? You want to get supplies to civilians? Ooh, you know what? I don't know. But because this distrust is happening right now, I feel like it's too easy for people to just ignore that every single humanitarian organization who is in the ground in this region, who does this work, who are boots on the ground every single day, it's too easy to ignore that they are calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. Yes, it is a little bit <laughs> jarring that a ceasefire is viewed with any skepticism or concern. And we even say, Alyssa, that even putting the word humanitarian in front of ceasefire, actually, it's just a ceasefire. We are calling for a ceasefire. We know that what is unfolding before us did not start on October 7th, but the events of that day have made it clearer to us than ever before 
that we can choose either the zero-sum path where everyone loses, where humanity suffers, where Palestinians and Israeli civilians lose. I'm still in Gaza. We're still in the same situation. I'm still with 60 people in this place. And uh, we are um, we are still, we, are, we just ran out of some essential food items. We are getting some, uh, some support. We are now looking for... Um, for more items in Khan Yunus area. It's very dangerous though to move because of the bombings. We don't know anything about our homes. We were told that there are battles there and there is heavy bombardment in, um, in our neighborhood. Um, we only knew about our house uh, like four days ago that it was still standing. We don't know anything afterwards. Still kind of difficult in terms of communication. In terms of food, um, uh, this area, Zawaida and Surat, Nusayrat and Deir al-Balah are running out of food. Uh, yesterday, um, the guys went out shopping, trying to find to replenish some of the supplies and there was nothing. And um, like nothing, I mean, from biscuits to uh, bean uh, cans, to canned beans, these kind of thing, you know, the essential stuff and the cheeses that we get. Um, now there's nothing uh, except rice. Uh, even the pastas are running out. Uh, we are now, uh, they are now going to Khan Yunus uh, and um, hopefully they'll come back safely to try and get um, some support that we got through another uh, organization uh, that is delivering food parcels to, to its uh, employees. And uh, that's also good to know because some are actually sending to their employees packages. Um, so they are going to bring and they are going to try to find some uh, food items. Because of political failure, or we find a new radical push for peace. And I know that sounds, you know, all sorts of pie in the sky utopia, but what this notion Revenge begets revenge. Violence begets violence. Who wants that? Having worked in post-conflict settings like Rwanda and having late-night conversations with people who suffered loss of their entire families, talking about how can there be peace without reconciliation? How can there be reconciliation without justice? And that sad combination of really profound thinking of how do we get a road to peace. And it has to start with a ceasefire now. We must push our political leaders to end the cycle of violence. Our future depends on it. Right. And let's say, I want to look to the future and I want to try to dream up some hope here. Let's say a ceasefire happens. Let's say a ceasefire is enacted. Hopefully one will be in place by the time this airs. What conditions need to be in that ceasefire to adequately protect civilians? And what needs to happen moving forward? Well, it's so hard to imagine the type of reconstruction, rebuilding, rehabilitation, just of infrastructure. The human toll is staggering. The ceasefire, you cannot deliver humanitarian aid when there's bombs and shelling all around. We all know that. It's terrifying. We're seeing on the news what that looks like, this conflict, other conflicts. So the conditions need to be sustained. We need pathways to diplomacy and negotiation and finding a way forward. But most importantly is how do we look at the long road to recovery of people's lives and livelihoods? And that includes how you support the emotional, <laughs> physical well-being of everybody who is affected by this crisis. And it goes to the very basic needs, you know, of clean water, sanitation. It is hard to imagine the basic hygiene right now. Our staff members, our colleagues living in these crowded places without running water. About last night, it was indescribable to be honest I'm staying in the south of Gaza Strip and uh, you might think it's safer or it's away from uh, the war that's raging around us it's not it's not yani we're not targeted directly in the house we're staying in and this is the safest that it gets um, the sounds, the lights, the bumping, it's 
indescribable like it's uh, like a sun rising in the middle of the night from the intensity of uh, of the bombing and uh, this morning we we wake up to news of uh, dead bodies in the streets like tens of dead bodies in the streets as last night it was maybe the worst since the beginning of the war but the thing is we say that about each night this night is the worst and then the next night comes and it's even worse and the next is worse and so on so we're literally waiting the 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 bomb that's gonna kill us any moment this is how we spend our nights the first thing you feel with a complete blackout is panic like you want to know what's happening around you uh, you hear everything like bombing and sounds and uh, uh, the the planes uh, it's a war like uh, the sounds of war raging around you but you don't know um, the explanation of these sounds you don't know where you don't know who's hit you don't know who survived um, you can't uh, a check on your family, on your friends. Uh, so it's panic and it's um, waiting, waiting, waiting and speculation of what happened where, who got targeted, who, who you lost or you might have lost. This is the main feeling. And then there's the difficulties of living without any kind of communications. If you want to get water, you have to do a lots of um, calls and communications with many people to check where the, the there is available water if there is a long line to wait um, if the prices are still the same or it's very high is the water a little bit clean drinkable or not uh, because um, there is no fuel uh, so there is no transportation either you go walking or uh, on a uh, uh, animal pulled uh, cart and it's not available so you um, you use your uh, communication to know all of the details before you decide whether to go to get uh, to fetch the water or not for example the same goes for bread or for wheat um, the same for all of the uh, alarmingly decreasing supplies so you use the communications um, to check about the situation the status quo where to, where to go who will come with you and uh, when you're deprived of these communications you're left in complete darkness you don't know how to plan it gets 10 times more difficult everything gets much more difficult and of course i'm talking about um, a situation where it's more or less stable if you get bombed or targeted or someone gets injured or killed or a house is collapsing over your head yeah and you can't communicate with anyone with a message or a phone call so this is a huge risk a huge danger and uh, and in, in what I want to say lastly is that when we do have communications back, it doesn't mean that it's full communication. It's very disrupted, very uh, unstable, very weak, and you can barely use them. We need to be able to get food, water, fuel, so that the basics get working again, and we can scale up as a community a massive humanitarian response and recovery. Now, there's a lot of political will that is needed to get there. And what is the way forward? We need civilians to be able to live in security, to put their heads down at night. You know, Early on, our staff would say in these voice notes, I'm sorry if I don't get to talk to you tomorrow. I don't know if I will survive the night. They're saying their goodbyes to us as they go to sleep at night. So that kind of change, that they can feel a sense of trust, that they can 
take care of their family, that they can help their children recover from this trauma and to rebuild in that slow, long haul of rebuilding. And one of the things that concerns me often in post-conflict context is when media attention fades, that means the resources could dry up. And we know that to invest in a full recovery, it's going to need a sustained level of resources to ensure that people can rebuild from the ground up their basic lives and livelihoods to start and to live in dignity and security. How can people support your work? They can go to www.oxfamamerica.org to learn more about our work in the occupied Palestinian territories in Israel to sign our petition for a ceasefire, please get involved and call your elected officials and to donate. We are planning and preparing to scale up as fast and as significantly as possible as soon as conditions allow. And in the meantime, we are using our voice. We are actively influencing policymakers here in the United States and elsewhere to use the voice of the United States to influence a real change of trajectory. So please, if you care about all of this work and human rights and dignity, security, and our common humanity, show up for the organizations you support, go to Oxfam's website and take action, donate, and learn. What gives you hope? What gives me hope, Alyssa, is our 33 staff members in Gaza who are getting up every day and sharing their stories, sharing their voice. They want to be heard and remembered, and they want the world to know they're there. And they are fighting for justice, and we are all doing that together. And that gives me hope that even in the face of such catastrophe and fear and trauma, that our common dreams and hopes of a just world where people can live in dignity and security. And our 33 staff and their families are really heroes, and they give me hope. Thank you so much. You give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to be with you. If there's any chance of us being able to act constructively to do something. It will require an admission of complexity and maintaining what on the surface may seem contradictory ideas. That, that what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the, the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is, is unbearable. And what is also true is that there is a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your uncle or your aunt tell you stories about the madness of anti-Semitism. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying, who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. And what is true, right? I mean, we can go on for a while. And the problem with the social media and trying to TikTok activism and trying to debate this on that is you can't speak the truth. You can pretend to speak the truth. You can speak one side of the truth. And in some cases, you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. And so if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean that all of us are complicit to some degree. I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. 
But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? That's the conversation we should be having. Not just looking backwards, but looking forward. And, and that can't happen if we are confining ourselves to our outrage. I would rather see you out there talking to people, including people who you disagree with. If you genuinely want to change this, then you've got to figure out how to speak to somebody on the other side and listen to them and understand what they are talking about and not, and not dismiss it. Because you can't save that child without their help. Not in this situation. Over and over again, people ask me what side I am on. More accurately, they demand that I choose their side and demonize the other, no matter what side they're on. People who are normally nuanced and able to see context and history and pain can now only see their pain, the pain of one side or the other. Terrorism is trying to cloak itself in the mantle of the noble revolutionary. Vengeance is masquerading as justice, and both are doing so to justify the killing of innocents as a tactic to usher in the political changes they want to achieve. If you must know what side I'm on, it's the side of humanity. It's the side of never being okay with the knowing, willful murder of civilians, whether dancing at a music festival or just happen to be near a person the other side wants dead. It's all horrible. None of it is justifiable. Stop trying to justify any of this. There are too many families in Israel and Gaza who will never, ever be the same. There are too many memories serving as blessings. There are too many babies who will never know their parents and too many parents who will never see their children grow. We must let food and fuel and medicine and water along with shelter and safety get to every civilian in the region who needs it. I am so grateful for the work of Oxfam, for the work of UNICEF, for the work of Doctors Without Borders, for the work of Amnesty International, and every other aid organization trying to make this happen. While others kill, they are trying to save. And that is who I will always stand with. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not 